Alright, turning your Bible to First Peter, and if you're new to our church, welcome. Please, we've already over-ordered lunch if you're in the building, uh, assuming some of you are newer, and if you want, lunch is on us in our office just to the side, and we're going to get to know each other and share the vision and mission of the church. But if you're new to this series, we're looking at a letter, and it really helps. Whenever you're looking at a chapter in a book, you got to look at the chapter in light of the whole story. And so I want to give us a quick recap assuming some of you have just tuned in for the first time. This letter is written to churches and to people scattered over a geographic range of as much as the state of California. So Peter, one of Jesus' most intimate, close followers, is writing a letter to churches everywhere who were facing a similar threat. They were followers of the way of Jesus, but they lived in a culture that had gone far from the way of Jesus, so how do we follow him living in cities and cultures and neighborhoods and in homes that don't follow him? Here's what we've learned so far. Today we're going to look at verses 13 through 16, but verses 3 to 12 is one long sentence. And like Steve shared last week, if you missed the message, the great illustration. What Peter does is like creating a great chili. You throw all these ingredients in the pot together, and when you take a bite of it, your mouth should like burst with flavor because there's all sorts of individual ingredients mixed together create something that's wow. And that's what Peter does. He starts the letter with wow. Wow, we are rich in God's mercy. The reason you're alive is the mercy of God. The reason you're breathing is the mercy of God. And we, apologies, we're rich in God's mercy. Not only that, we are rich with God's inheritance. All the things that belong to the Father have been given to the Son. Everything that's in Jesus has now been given. When we express our faith and trust in Him, we are adopted into a new family. We belong to God. And with that, we have a massive inheritance that we haven't even thought about. We have new life, and we have a new future, and we have a new hope. And all of these things come, not because of us, but because of Jesus. But like we saw last week, mixed into the chili, so to speak, are not only flavors, but a little bit of heat. A good chili has a little bit of spice to it. And you know what? For us, in a more serious way, part of our following Jesus includes suffering. There, are, there will be moments in your life, if they're not already happening or didn't already happen, when you say, I am in allegiance to Jesus, where there are going to be things, people, ideas that are in contrast. And that's going to cause real suffering. It's going to mean saying no to some things that everyone else is doing. Why? Because you're prude? No. But because you found a better way. You found a life-giving way. And those things claim to produce life, but they don't. And so you're saying yes to God, and that's going to hurt sometimes. And Peter's reminding the church, like I want to remind you, that in our culture, there are lots of views on how to live the full life. And some of those views are competing against each other. We who follow Jesus are not looking down on others, saying we're better. No, we're looking upwards to God, saying he is more inviting. And his way is better, and we find life in him. So there will be times where the good news doesn't feel good to you. That is normal. So what can we do? We learned from Steve last week that the testing, the suffering of our faith produces a reality that 
our faith in Jesus is true, it's tried, it's real, it's not just a hoax, it's genuine. So we can grow in knowing the Word of God, right, and deepening our knowledge of God as we trust Him and find that He is faithful. God is trustworthy, and even in our times of suffering, we can lean in on Him. All that's um, uh, repeat, because what He's going to say is in light of everything I just repeated. In light of all this good mixed with suffering, how do we live? First Peter 1, verse 13 through 16. Let's read it and we'll think about it. Therefore, again, because of all God's done, with minds that are alert, and then a descriptive phrase, fully sober, set your hope, which by the way is a command. Peter's saying, church, set your hope on what? On the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, which hasn't happened yet. That's a future thing. Then verse 14, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. And then he gives a reason. For it is written, and then he quotes the Bible, be holy, right? Because I am holy. And then we really should read to the end, because it's going to be an explanation of what that means, but we'll take a pause, and next week Stephen will be sharing on the implications of everything we talk about today. Knowing who you are really matters. The reason that Peter starts with this review of all that we have is because it's possible in times of suffering or in times of temptation or in confusing times to forget who you are. Now the reality of it is, I don't have to tell you this, it's already true, you, right now, are living for something. Some of you, towards the end of your career, you're living for retirement. Some of you younger in your, your schooling, you're living right now in this education to move into some sort of future. Some of you are new to the metro area, and you're living right now probably for connection. Like, you're here, but you want to be, like, grounded here with people, and so you're living for those relationships. All of us are living uh, for someone, something. Uh, you could be living for your country. You could be living for your friends. We all have a motivation for why we do what we do. And what we're seeing is, is Peter realigning, hey, get your thinking straight. If we are following Jesus, living in a culture that's not necessarily in alignment with the way of Jesus, we don't have time to live in ignorance or in drunkenness, and he's using that as a metaphor. So there's going to be all sorts of implications over the next section. The next few weeks are hyper-practical. I want to start with two things he says to do that are, are overflow of commands. And by the way, a command is not a bad thing. If, if you're about to cross the street, you don't see a car coming, and someone shouts, stop! That's a, that's a good command. They're telling you that danger is lurking out in front. And out of love, they're saying, hey, stop. And so in one sense, what we're about to talk about today sounds like a negative command. But actually, it's the most life-giving thing that we can do. Two things that Peter tells us to do. Number one, write this down. Set your hope. We need to set. We need to set. We need to think about it. And we need to see where it our hope is landing, and we need to make sure our hope is 
planted in the right spot. Set your hope, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. He says it on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. Okay, I said the word hope. The problem is what we think hope is. In our culture, when I think of the word hope, this year I was hoping the Seahawks would still be in the playoffs. Okay, some of you don't care about the NFL. Look, God forgives you, but, but, uh, but, but I, was, I was hoping it didn't happen this year. Uh, hope for us is more of a wish, like I hope that the mandates would end. We don't know how that's going to work out, but we're wishing like we're wanting, right? I hope that tomorrow will be 85 degrees and sunny here in Portland. It will in Karachi. So, so I wish, but reality tells me it's probably not going to happen. When we think about biblical hope, it's never about wishful thinking. Hope here. Hope in the Bible, and write this down, is confident expectation. Hope is like a confident expectation. Um, uh, Steve, uh, Stephen, who's, who'll be teaching next week, he gave a great illustration last time he was chatting, and it was so helpful. He's like, no one watches a rerun of a sporting event the same way. Do you remember that? I thought that was so helpful. So, so last night, those of you who love Jesus well, you, you're watching Green Bay play the 49ers, right? And if you missed the game and you wanted to watch it, it's already ruined. But if four seconds to go, and it's tied, and, and it looked like Green Bay was at home, was going to win, but then they blocked a kick, and they scored, they tied the game. Four seconds to go, and all San Francisco has to do is kick a field goal, and, and they go on to the next leg of the playoffs, well, everyone's waiting, you know, commercial break, and then they kick the field goal, and the future of the Green Bay Packers went in the toilet. It ended. They're done. And the 49ers, you know, whether you're a 49ers fan is irrelevant. They're moving forward. Last night, I was like, now, I was watching the game in real time. Real time for me is record it, fast forward the commercials. It wasn't live. You know, it already passed, but I fast forward. I'm like, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Now, now I, I still haven't recorded. I could watch it this afternoon. But I'm going to watch it in a different way. I can't unknow what I know. I know San Francisco won. So when I watch it, I'm watching it with a new lens because the future has already been determined. I can confidently expect San Francisco is going to win that game. And my DVR is not going to lie to me. It's going to tell me what's already true. Okay, here's what, what Peter, loved one from Jesus, hyper close to Jesus, is reminding you, set your confident expectation not in what you do, not in your work, not in only the here and now. Because if you only live for the here and now, you will be tossed back and forth with every pandemic, pre-pandemic, endemic, or pathetic form of life that we live in. You will be washed to and fro. Set your hope, what? On the grace that's in the future to be revealed when Jesus returns. Now let's get back to the sports analogy. I can't, I can't not see what's already there. You know Jesus promised to return. That's a fact. Jesus rose from the grave. That is a fact. Jesus is ruling the universe. That's a fact. 
And because those facts are true, I can live now in light of the future. Set your hope on what you know God will do based on his faithfulness to to get us this far. Because Jesus is risen, I have hope that I can be rescued right now. Because Jesus is risen, I have hope for tomorrow. Because no matter what happens to me, I am a part of Jesus and Jesus is a part of me. I am united to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I can be weak, but God's strong. I can feel low, but God's above. I can have no hope, but I can hold on to confident expectation that God will get me through. And by the way, that is how we stand firm in tough times. It is confidently expecting that the God who was faithful and is faithful will be faithful. Don't set your hope in you. Most of the cultural makeup, most of the cultural ethos is about finding confidence in ourselves. Which on one level is okay because if you're insecure that you have any skills and I tell you you're actually gifted, that's helpful. Would you agree? That's helpful. But that's limited. When you think about your future, what hope do you have to live tomorrow ought to be grounded in what God's already done in Jesus. So because Jesus will return, because Jesus will make the world new, because Jesus has invited us to life that lasts forever, I can walk through five years, five decades, 50 years of immense suffering with hope, a confident expectation that the God who's getting me through will get me through to the end And I know when he returns, which is a promise, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will rise. That's going to be freaky. But it's going to happen. And those of us who are alive, if we are, will be raised to life in the new you, The real new body that is like Jesus, which by the way, Jesus' body is eternal. God incarnated himself. He enfleshed and that has not been broken. Jesus is eternal and he's embodied and you and I will be like him. We will not be him. (laughs) You're not going to be better than Jesus. But we will be like him, embodied here in a world made new with no more tears, no more suffering, no more Netflix subscriptions. No more, no more sorrow. So, okay, why can I rise up tomorrow and live tomorrow with confidence? Because the God who loves me is going to get me to that place and he's going to be with me forever. And that is our confident hope. If our hope is in anything short of Jesus, we are going to find ourselves slipping in our following Jesus because I'm not trusting you, and I'm not even trusting the church, which is the people of God. I'm not trusting the preacher. <laughs> I am trusting in Jesus. Set your hope. Now, how do we do this? Which is why Peter says, therefore, in light of all God's done, with minds that are alert and fully sober, which is so interesting. He uses an analogy we would all get. When I put my hope in other things, it's like I'm walking around drunk. It's possible during this pandemic that you've been walking around drunk, not intoxicated because of tequila or whatever you've had too much of, but in your thinking, when someone's intoxicated, what happens? When they're high or they're drunk, 
they are acting in ways that are not their norm because whatever they've taken has distorted them for the moment. And it's possible that we've been living this way. Literally, you see someone who's been drunk, they're louder than they normally are. You can't get them to shut up, right? It's like, hey, like, calm down. What, man? They're louder and they will do things they don't normally do because of whatever they've taken. When our hope is misguided, when our hope is off-center, it's a metaphor here. We live in ways that make no sense. So we give in to our fears even though we have nothing to be afraid of. We start to doubt and wonder even though God has been historically faithful. We, we disassociate ourselves with God. We pursue him less. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't enter in because we feel like there's no value. That's having a mind that's off course. And so he says, the way you set your hope is to set your mind, which is why we, we ought to pursue God. It's why we're doing the five weeks of Monday prayer and fasting. Look, if it's a religious exercise, use this as a starter for your fireplace. This paper will do you no good. But if it's a platform for you to say, I want to build into my life a regular pursuit of setting my mind on God. I'm going to say no to food for one meal or one day because I think that time with God is valuable and, and I don't even know what to do. We gave you a guide. I don't know what to read. We gave you a guide. I don't know what to listen to. We gave you a QR code. But you have to set your hope. I cannot set your hope for you, neither should I. We are invited to set our hope and ground it in God. Because otherwise, if we don't, our hope will be placed somewhere. But like the analogy, we will live in a drunkard, intoxicated, off-centered way. And we wonder why we feel off. It's because our hope is off. Now, when we live right, in, the, in our mind we understand then we could see suffering for what it is. It, 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 suffering is not going to throw us off or the unknown. I, God, if you're so good, why did you do this? Well, one thing, we don't know what God did or didn't do. Well, why did you allow this to happen? These are honest questions of the soul. But when I look at the whole narrative of the Bible, I realize lots of things happened to people before me that they didn't understand that in hindsight make total sense because we see the fingerprints of God. So I have to allow space to say, there are going to be some times where I, didn't, I don't know why this is happening to me, but God's track record is trustworthy, so I put my hope not on me, but on him. We need to set our, our hope on Jesus, otherwise we will be influenced by other factors, and that could lead us to a path of instability. I, I'm, I'm saying this, friends. All the last couple of years has brought to light is what's already there. Hear me. It was already there. Our half-hearted allegiance to Jesus was already there. Our lack of stability and grounded and stick to to what we believe, whatever your level, it was already there. All the weather did was blow in wind to 
to blow the smoke of what was really there, and now we see what's really there. Your life has already been your life. Now, the question is, and the reason we're studying this letter is, how can we move forward in a way that's more honoring to Jesus and in alignment with what Jesus has done? This is good news. If, if you're feeling like, man, this last season has not been right, that's good news. The Bible says, God says to you, set your hope on Jesus and the fact that he is who he says he is and what he promised to do in the future is worth you holding on to because God is going to get you there. Man, I'm a little jacked up here. All right, second thing is an overflow of the first thing. So set your hope. Second thing is set your life. If my mind is going to be centered on the truth of Jesus, well, then I need to set my life. Verse uh, 14, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. There was a way of living all of us had before we were exposed to the good news of Jesus, before we read the Bible, before we understood the things of God. So we had our natural inclinations. Yours are different than mine. Mine are different than yours, but we all had them. And he's like, before Jesus, there was your life. But now... In, in light of Jesus, don't let those old patterns be the pattern for your life. Set your life in the right direction, which means when you express faith in Jesus, Jesus died and rose again to pay our sin debt in full. That is true. And he's alive, and he's changing lives, and that's true. When you say, Jesus, man, I'm, I'm leaning into you. You did that for me. I receive. Something happens. You are given new birth. We're going to see in two weeks, you are born again, born from above. You're not the same person. Jesus is working in and through you. If all of that's true, and you really have the new creation, and you've really been adopted into God's family, then I ought to set the pattern of my life based on the family I belong to. Before following Jesus, I was following someone in the Bible, he's described with many names, the prince of darkness, the evil one, the devil, Satan, any which way you want to call the opposing force to the creator God, we were following that pattern, that person, whether we believed it or not. But because of Jesus, we've been set apart and now we've been put on a new path. Now, am I living in light of what's true? If I've been born anew, am I living the old way? If I've been born anew, given a new heart with new desires, given the spirit of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives, lives in me, lives in you. So Jesus always knew what to do, which means I can know what to do when I need to know what to do. I can't use the excuse I don't know what to do because the same spirit that guided Jesus is now guiding me, which why it says, Verse 14, as obedient children. How do we, how do we set like a, a new life, a new set of patterns? As obedient children. I remember, I now belong to Jesus. I, I, I was born to a biological family. Yes, so are you. Some of your families were healthy, some were broken. And you take one rock and you throw it against a beautiful piece of glass and one rock can shatter the whole thing. You ever seen it? One rock can shatter a whole windshield. So it is possible that you and I were living as a result of rocks that have been thrown, choices have been made by others or by us, and it shattered things. But we can live into that shattered life 
Or we can remember we've been given a new pane of glass. Jesus has made things new. It doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. They happened. It doesn't mean that we don't feel the effects. We feel the effects. But I don't have to live in the old patterns when God has made me new. Obedient children. We belong to a new family. He says, do not conform to the evil desires when you, when you lived in ignorance. There was a way of living. You had no choice. But now you have a choice. So life is filled with choices. Am I going to set my life on choices that are in alignment with who God made me to be? I have found, maybe you found this to be true, that the mixture of dark chocolate and peanut butter is sent from above. I don't know. Maybe that's not your jam. Maybe you're into broccoli or carrots or whatever. But I find... You take Trader Joe's dark chocolate, cover the peanut butter, and you put it in the freezer, and then you bite into it. It's like, I can eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I had, I had some last night. It wasn't Trader Joe's, but I had some last night right out of the freezer. And that, uh, that's good. Okay, but I could say, uh, I'm going to have that for breakfast, and I'm going to have that for lunch, and I'm going to have that for dinner, and I'm going to have that for snack time. And and I, I, I have the ability to do that. I could afford Trader Joe's. So I could, I could do that. Now, we would all agree that's going to lead to some consequences that I'm not going to like, like diabetes, like right, rotted teeth, all that. So I'm making choices all the time. And that's kind of a funny example, but it's true to all of life. There are things that God has said are life-giving. There are things that God has said are not life-producing. You and I have to set our life. Am I going to pursue what God has said as life-giving, or am I going to say whatever I think tastes good is life-giving? And let me tell you, if you like chocolate and peanut butter and you don't like dark chocolate, Trader Joe's, the problem is you, not Trader Joe's. But I have choices to make, and, and sometimes we forget, why does God feel so distant? As loved children, set your lives. Don't give in to anything that you think feels good. Rather, know what is good, know what is life-giving, and lean into that. You see, the truth is, I can follow Jesus because Jesus has given me the ability to follow him. And I think much of our standing firm has to do with our intentional pursuit of following this Jesus and doing what he says, which is why, verse 15, makes sense. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And that sounds simple and threatening. Because I hear the word holiness and, and I get all thrown off. I mean, God is holy. I'm supposed to be holy. And, and why is my life such a wreck right now. Do you know you can follow God and your life can be wrecked at the same time? Think of Jesus. Jesus went about doing the will of the Father, whatever the Father said, Jesus said. Whatever the Father did, Jesus did. He's the pattern. So Jesus is holy. But even Jesus being holy led him into some crazy spaces. On the Sabbath day, there was a guy with a shriveled hand, deformed hand, and he comes into synagogue and and the father is like, let's bring wholeness to this person's hand. So Jesus says, hey, are you allowed to make things whole on the Sabbath? Because he knew that the people around him just misunderstood God. 
And so Jesus says, hey, be, be whole. And his hand in front of their eyes is made new. You would think they would all post a photo of the new hand on, on, the, on their feet and say, God is great. You know what happened? The religious leaders went out of the synagogue and plotted how to get rid of him. Be holy because I am holy. This is where we can pursue Jesus yet find ourselves in difficult spaces because that was the pattern of Jesus. It doesn't mean in our pursuit of following Jesus they're going to live a carefree life or a problem-free life. Even Jesus the Son did what was right always and they still tried to kill him. But what we find in Jesus is he knows that the Father's voice is best. And so Jesus always does what the Father says. So that's the meaning of you and I, his obedient children, sons and daughters. We live for the Father's voice because we know that the Father's voice is right. That is a different understanding of holiness than I think some of us grew up with or, or think about. When I say the word cold, what comes to mind? Well, this morning was cold. I had to scrape the ice off of my windshield. It was that cold. Cold is weather. Cold is also a color. Right now, if you look at the back, if you're in the room, it's blue, and that is a cold color. There are other colors that are warm colors. So I say, you know, blue and uh, color, and you're thinking, or cold, you're thinking, what is it? It could be temperature. It could be a color. Uh, cold could be like I'm sniffling sneezing. All sickness is not COVID right now, people. Just because someone's sneezing doesn't mean they got, they got the COVID, it, they could have a cold. So cold could be weather, cold could be a color, cold could be like your state of being, and, and cold could be a mood like, man, they were cold towards me. They weren't nice. Holy means lots of things. And when we look at the Bible, here's what I want to dispel. I want to dispel the notion that holy only means perfect, because when I say God is holy, you probably are thinking God is perfect, and that's totally true. It's one, it's one meaning of the word. And in the Bible, holy does mean perfect, right? So God is holy, God is perfect. But here's the trouble. When we read series of verses like this, it says, it's written, be holy because God's holy. We think, I can't do that. I can't do the Christian life. Jose, I've tried. I've tried to be perfect, right? And I failed. And then I tried again, and I asked forgiveness, and I failed again, what we forget is the word holy when it comes to God does mean perfect, but holy when it's talking about us means, and another nuance of the word, is set apart and unique. So God is holy, perfect, but when they built the temple and the tabernacle, those pieces in the temple and tabernacle had to be holy. They weren't perfect, they were set apart. The gold was the gold. But that gold utensil was set apart. You didn't use it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You used it in the presence of God. That table, you didn't use to play ping pong. You used it in the presence of God. It was unique. It was set apart for God's purposes, for God's presence. So, let's go full circle. God is holy, perfect. You, if you're in Jesus Christ, are holy. That does not mean that you are perfect. And if you think, I have to be perfect in order to be in God's presence, you will always walk around discouraged and probably leave the faith, which is why legalistic churches 
are so joy-killing. Because we get this perception, in order to be in God's presence, I have to look perfect. I have to act perfect. No, you are holy. You are set apart. God set you apart as valuable and useful and able to enter his presence. Which means I can come to God with all my junk, but I've been set apart. I'm not cast away. I've been set apart for God's presence. And God's presence can come and deal and bring wholeness to my brokenness. And God can bring forgiveness to my sin. And I'm made for God's presence. That's what it means that you're holy. So, so if you're in a church that you brought up, if you don't do what's right, then you'll never measure up to the presence of God. You haven't heard any good news. To say that I'm holy means that Jesus' DNA now lives in me. And that, that I am able to receive God's presence and God's forgiveness. That's a totally different view of holiness. And by the way, the why matters. Peter says, be holy because the one who called you is holy. Well, why? It's because you've been adopted into God's family. You can try to live perfect. Even if you did, it doesn't mean that God would accept you. Because you're still flawed. Rather, no. I receive grace that comes from Jesus, and now I can make the right choices. I cannot live on dark chocolate and peanut butter. I can live a whole life. I can choose the way of Jesus instead of the way of my background or my personal opinion or my cultural bent. I can actually learn the way of Jesus and live the way of Jesus, and my motivation is I've been adopted into God's family. It's what God made me for. So holiness isn't about impressing God and then getting accepted. It's because we've been accepted by the grace and mercy of Jesus that now we can live the new life. Does that make sense? That is a total, it's why, you know, when I was a kid, I kid you not, it was a summer, it was New York, and it was really hot and muggy in New York. And so I remember trying to go into the church building, into the main space, which they called the sanctuary, which is kind of intimidating. We just call this the main space. Because sanctuary just sounds like holy, right? But I remember going to go in and the usher saying, hey, whoa, you can't go in. I'm like, why? Because I was wearing shorts. And Jesus obviously was offended by my knees. And these weren't even shorts. These weren't like 70s tennis shorts. These were just shorts. But in order for me to be holy, I had to wear long pants. In order to be holy, you, you have to have sleeves that go down here. In order to live holy, you, you can't wear makeup. In order to live holy, you shouldn't wear jewelry. In order to, there were all these externals on what it meant to be acceptable into God's presence. Now, I'm not saying you should, you should show off your body and draw people to your attention, right? But all I'm saying is that notion of holiness impacted me because I thought, God, you made these knees. And yes, they are ugly, but you made them. That can't, what it, that can't be what it means to be holy in God's sight. And then I read the Bible and realize that's actually not what it means. Verse 15, just as the one who called you is perfect, so now live set apart and altogether different like the perfect one in all that you do. For it's written, God is perfect and therefore I can... I'm, I'm made for his presence. 
so it doesn't make sense to live a different way. When you really know Jesus and you receive grace and mercy, it ought to impact the way you see everything in life. And now, Peter going full circle says, set your hope on who? Jesus. And when your hope is on Jesus and who he is and what he promised to do, it, it has to impact today. So some of us are frustrated because our hope's in ourselves, and it's not in Jesus. Others are frustrated because our hope's in Jesus, but, hear this, our life is not aligned with the way of Jesus. So in that sense, there is a good conviction from the Holy Spirit, which is why Peter writes the letter, by the way. He sees that some people in the church are slipping away from their rock-solid faith in Jesus and are starting to live a different life. So he calls them back, not out of guilt, but out of reminder, God's presence is what you are made for. Therefore, learn the way of Jesus. And by the way, you have the power to actually live the way of Jesus. Not perfectly yet. So we will stumble. We will sin. But that doesn't mean I'm excluded from God's presence. No, I've been made holy I can now receive grace and mercy when I turn to the Father and say, I am sorry, that is not who you are, and I'm your kid, and I've gone off, but I'm coming back. And that's why the word repentance is so beautiful, because it's an invitation to live as who you were created to be. And you were created for God, and if you need mercy today, you can receive it. If you need a reminder today, you ought to receive it. If you need uh, an applause today because you've been living the way of Jesus, then God provides that as well. He's all that we need. 1 Peter 5.12 tells us why he wrote the letter. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying. This is the true grace, grace of God. Stand fast or stand firm in it. And this morning is an invitation when we think about the holiness of God to stand firm. If we know who he is, if we know what he's done, then day by day we can choose where to put our focus, our attention, our hope. And I'm telling you this morning, you can put your hope in the faithfulness of Jesus. The question is, will you? All right, a couple of questions that kind of lead our future. And these are, I'm throwing to you to think about today and this week. And we want to respond in Worship and Lexi and Stephen are going to come and, and lead us. Let's just ask the first honest question, where is your hope? Now, if your hope is in you or in anything other than the beautiful good news that Jesus loves you and provided a way of rescue, then, then the invitation is real simple. Well, get your hope off of you and place it back onto Jesus. And that, that might be the invitation for you this morning. The other question you ought to ask is, well, Peter says, set your hope on the right thing. Let me just ask you, what lies are you believing? Do you know there's some things we think about God that just aren't true? So we need to set our hope on, on what God's revealed about himself and Jesus. So am I believing a lie about God? Do I think things about God that aren't true? Am I believing things about the Bible that aren't true? Am I believing things about me that aren't true? Am I believing things about the church that aren't true? If I'm going to set my hope, I need to know where my hope is. And so the invitation is to, like Jesus said, ask. 
and seek and knock. And maybe God's calling you in this season to pursue so that your thinking's in alignment with what's true and then your hope is in the right place. Uh, maybe that's you here this morning. But I think for others of us, the invitation is more practical. Where are there gaps between what you say you believe and how you really live? And this is where the live holy because he's holy. Again, this is not a if you don't do this, the angry father is going to smash you. That's a, a poor view of God. It's a distorted view of God. It's a wrong view of God. No, the father has invited us to life. But when my life is out of alignment, how, how can I receive all good things from God when I'm choosing to go my own direction? So the invitation is to ask God to evaluate the way we're living because the way we're living is an outgrowth of what we're believing. And so if my thoughts are off and my view of God is off, of course my life is going to be going in a different direction. But when I realign my life with what God has said is true, then he invites me to actually walk it out. And that's what it means to live a holy life. That I'm actively pursuing Jesus and where he says, go this way, I'm saying, yeah, thank you. That's a loving word. I'm going to go that way. Because that's, that's the best way. That's the life-giving way. And by the way, that life-giving way will be in conflict with your emotions. It will be in conflict with your appetites. It will be in conflict with your neighborhood and your friends and the culture around us. But we're going to get to choose day by day who, whose voice am I, am I going to listen to and, and what choice am I going to make based on what belief I hold. And so I love what Peter's doing. He's like, just come back. It, it comes back to Jesus, which is, it's not simplistic, but it's actually quite simple. Quite simple. It comes back to following Jesus.